Good morning. I am um, thankful to be here this morning, and I'm thankful for this opportunity. I am personally am so thankful for Wellspring, and I just want to take just a few minutes just to thank the Lord for what it's meant to me personally. I'm thankful for our elders that encourage it. I'm thankful for the writers of the curriculum who faithfully study God's word and instruct it, not using their words, but God's words. I'm thankful for Janet and Melissa and Kim, who put so much time into Wellspring Kids to run smoothly and that exemplify the Proverbs 31 women to each of us. I'm thankful for each speaker who, I don't know about you ladies, but it just seems like every morning I get here and it's just like fire hose. And I have learned so much. And um, I just didn't want to open up without praising God for what we have. It's just a a wonderful opportunity. Um, Today I'd like to spend some time in the book of Proverbs. So if you would all open up your Bibles to Proverbs. We'll start with Proverbs 16.22. But um, that is a book that guides us on how to live wisely, wise, godly lives, how to avoid the pitfalls of unwise and God, ungodly con- conduct. And since our wellspring theme verse, above all else, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life, is from the book of Proverbs. I thought it would be a good practice for each of us to look at the book of Proverbs and see what it has to say about each of our three disciplines. Um, part of my Bible study that I do every morning has a portion of Proverbs. And when I'm reading through it, I try to kind of think, you know, where does this apply in my personal life? And um, so that's kind of what I did this morning is there's no way I can go through every verse that is covered. But I just thought we would do as many as we could that could just help teach us more about the disciplines that we're learning about. So let's look at Proverbs 20, 16, 22 first. It says, Understanding is a fountain of life to the one who has it. And another word for fountain in the King James Version is wellspring. And um, But the discipline of the fools is folly. And <clears throat> my MacArthur's notes said, Understanding... The, the advice of the understanding person brings blessing, but the correction offered by fools is useless. And I just think that's what we have today. We have um, a wealth of knowledge through God's word, through wellspring. Um, in Proverbs, it offers us cleansing, refreshment, nourishment, and contentment. So let's start by reading Discipline 1. Go ahead. Okay. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart, worships me toward God through the word of God, and in particular the gospel. So if you would turn just over a page to Proverbs 18.15. The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ears of the wise seek knowledge. Then turn to Proverbs 22, 17 through 19. We're just going to keep flipping, ladies, so hang on to me. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you. 
that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. And it's just a reminder, ladies, is God's word ready on our lips? Do we know it so well that it's ready on our lips, ready to share, ready to speak truth to our own lives? Turn to Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Wisdom for successful living comes from God alone, and we need to trust him to direct our lives. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Personal knowledge of God gives insight to our life. We most recognize God's character and respond to it revering, trusting, and worship, and obeying, and serving him. If we hide God's word in our heart, if we study it faithfully, if we lean on it and not on our own understanding, it will lead us to be a revering, trusting, worshipful, obeying servant of his. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, a verse that we probably all know. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And I think all of those verses correspond very well with our discipline one of Guarding our hearts and having a heart that's worshipful to God. Let's look at discipline two. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and His word. Our families need to be encouraged from a heart of love, and they need to see Christ in our life, which requires discipline from us. Let's turn to Proverbs twenty three twenty six. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Proverbs, just over a page, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up your child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I know that to some of us that's a hard verse because we know many people that have done their best to raise godly children and they've rejected Christ. But the general principle is, and our general goal, is to train up our children. And I just want to remind us that we all have children that we can influence. So whether you're a mom currently in the throes of it, or if you're a grandma, you have an opportunity to speak truth and to speak God's truth to your grandchildren. But if you don't have any kids, or if you're single, God gives us children. God gives us children through NGM. God gives us children through being ants. And um, so no matter what phase of life you're in, that verse applies to each one of us, that we have a responsibility to train up children in God's way. And to some of those children that you come in to influence, 
or have influence over, they may never hear God's truth if it isn't for you. So we just need to just remember that verse is not just for those of us in the throes of raising um, children. Turn to Proverbs 14.1. A wise woman builds up her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And I just thought, are we caring for our household so it flourishes it? Are we being wise women in the way that um, we care for our house? And then we'll turn to the passage we all love dearly, Proverbs 31. And I just wrote in big letters, goal. Let's look, Proverbs 31, verse 26. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her. That's a, that's a lofty goal for all of us. I don't know if you were here for Sunday school, but Kyle did an amazing job on Proverbs 31, and if you weren't here, it is well worth our time to listen to it. But that should be our goals. That should be on our mind for our household, um, and we should strive toward that. On to discipline three. Is a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority. The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. We need to cultivate healthy and constructive relationships that build up our own church body. Let's turn to Proverbs 13.20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer him harm. If we want to be wise, lady, we need to, ladies, we need to seek out friendships of wise ladies. We need to look for their counsel. Proverbs seventeen seventeen. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Would others consider us to be the type of friend that loves at all times? Just something to think about. And that verse kind of like confused me, and I was thinking, and a brother is born for adversity. So I went down to MacArthur's notes, and it just says, the difference between a friend and a brother is noted here. A true friend is a constant source of love, while a brother is one family member that may not be close but is drawn near in the time of trouble. Friends are closer than brothers because they are available at all times. And I just think we need to have a heart that's available at all times. Um, And just be mindful of that. Don't get so busy in our own things that we don't have time for others because we're commanded to be a friend. Proverbs 27, 17. And grasp oil 
Oh, and oh, iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. So we're back to who we choose as our friends to mentor us. Our friendships need to be aimed at strengthening one another's walk in the Lord. And we need to seek out friends, but we need to be the type of friend that when when we need to speak truth into someone's life, we speak. When we need to be quiet and pray, we pray. When we need to just be there, we're there. And Proverbs 31.20, back to our favorite chapter. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hand to the needy. We need to be selfless and giving women. We need to think, am I serving God by serving others? And if we do that, in Hebrews 6.10, it says, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook our work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And it's funny, this morning I got a text from my brother. I was sharing that someone had mentioned something about my mom, and he sent this verse. My mom was an example of someone that served others well, and she was a great example to me, but she was wheelchair-bound. And yet she used her time wisely, and when we got to her funeral, I don't even think there was a person there. I went to a church about the same size as this that came up and hadn't received a card filled with scripture in it. And I just think no matter what stage we're in in life, whether we're young moms or single, we need to take time to serve others well. And then this verse in Hebrews that my brother sent to me today says that, you know, he won't, we won't be overlooked for that. That is something we will be rewarded for. So in closing, my challenge for all of us, is do you know God intimately? Let's turn to two more passages, Proverbs 2, 3 through 5. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as a hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And our final verse is in Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. God needs to be directing our lives through his word, which is why it is so important that we take time to ponder what we have been taught in each of these lessons and also to faithfully study and apply apply God's word as we study it, as we learn it, as we hear it each day. Nasby. Nasty. New American Standard Bible. Thanks, Sandy. All right. I have a little bit of a tickle in my throat, so Jill brought me 
liquid. So I'm going to take a few sips while we're talking this morning. I hope it's okay. Just edit that part out. All right. So um, before we get started, so today's lesson is on contentment. And uh, I wanted to give a couple of um, things before we get started. Uh, Number one... This was a really hard lesson to prepare for, <laughs> I think for a couple of reasons, because the the topic is so broad, and there's no way this morning we're going to cover all of what the Bible has to say about contentment, or else we just would be here all day. Um, and secondly, I think the other reason that it was hard was because it was really convicting to me. And I think if anything I've learned while preparing this, it's that I've got a long, long way to go with contentment. So... Um, the other thing I wanted to say is I'm not standing up here going, all right, I studied it. I got it. Now I'm going to tell you guys how to do it. I'm just in in the same spot as you are all in that process of sanctification and trying to put off discontentment and put on contentment. And so it has been a really profitable study for me and, and I hope it, it is for you all as well. So I'm going to open up in a word of prayer and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is clear, that it is sure, and that it is full of conviction because it is truth. And Father, I'm just so thankful for all of the work that you have done so far in my own heart. And I pray that this lesson does the same for everyone sitting in this room and whoever might be listening online later. Father, your word is clear and it it tells us who we are supposed to be to bring you glory. And I just pray that you grow each of us into women who glorify you through um, the way that we choose to use our time, through the words that come out of our mouth, through our, our, our entire lives, because we love you, Lord. In your name, amen. So um, <laughs> early every summer, just give you a little hint into how Wellspring works. Um, Janet and Lori and Dina, so Lori and Dina do Saturday Wellspring, and Janet and I, we all get together to plan the next year of Wellspring. So we talk about um, the lessons we've done and the teachers and the discussion groups and should we change the meeting time and what went well and what needs to be changed and so on. Um, And so last June we met and I was assigned, I was asked, but more assigned, this lesson on contentment. And it made me a little concerned because you often learn what you're preparing to teach. And in fact, shortly after I was assigned it, Kyle said from up front in the pulpit, he said, they teach best what they need to learn most. (laughs) And I was like, oh, thank you. Okay, great. So I'm teaching on contentment. Um, And I tend to be a bit of a procrastinator by nature. Uh, And so I really tried to fight that by getting started on this lesson early. It would have been really easy to be like, oh, that's in February. That's so far away. So I got started early. So in June, I I started studying and outlining what the lesson was going to look like and where it was going to go. And then at the end of August, my hard drive crashed. And it was my work computer. Um... And anything and everything who what that wasn't in Dropbox or on the iCloud was just totally gone. I mean, the computer wouldn't even turn on. It was just, it was dead. So um, at first, I didn't realize everything that had been lost. Uh, but then it started to occur to me, my Wellspring lesson, um, which I brought up in a staff meeting one morning and was told, well, now you have your intro. <laughs> so I guess so. Um, so it was, it, my lesson was not recoverable. It didn't exist. Everything was totally, totally gone. There's something about pen and paper. So 
Um, there was a moment of disappointment when I first uh, realized that, but then I quickly remembered what my lesson was about. Oh, so contentment. Okay, God's trying to teach me something here. So instead of disappointment or discouragement, what I needed to do was remind myself um, of truth, right? So God is good. God is good. That was the truth I needed to remind myself of. And even though all of those hours of work are gone, God is good. And even though I needed to add additional hours into my work schedule to get a new system up and running, God is good. And um, I was reminded of, on that very computer that crashed, I have a, a quote taped, and it's a quote from Sarah Demarest. And she says this, If I were as kind and good as God, then I would have chosen this situation for myself as well. And that was what I needed in that moment. <laughs> I needed that truth to turn my heart from temptation to sin. Um, disappointment is not sin, but you can sin in disappointment. And I needed truth to tell my heart what to think, how to feel, how to respond. What I needed to do was counsel my heart with the goodness of God. And, and I use that word counsel because uh, when Lori Hantlett came and taught, she talked about shepherding your heart is counseling your heart. So, okay, then came the vertigo. So I had four solid weeks of 24-hour-a-day dizziness, tinnitus, and nausea. And I thought, could I respond with contentment to this? Because losing your document is one thing, right? But vertigo, that's an entirely different thing. And once again, I needed to remind myself of truth. God is good. And then that was followed by the Lord presenting a really good thing as an opportunity in my path, and I wanted it so, so bad. But then it started to slip away, and I wasn't getting what I wanted, and I made an idol out of a good thing. Could I respond with contentment to this? Was God still good? Yes, of course, God is still good. And I think when we look at the world around us, discontentment kind of seems to be the norm doesn't it? Our world is just filled with hopelessness and with discouragement and unhappiness and this constant grasping to fill a God-shaped void in people's lives. And if we're not careful, we can get wrapped up in that worldly thinking. And there's actually a concept in advertising that's called constructive discontent. This is a real thing. And it's when an advertiser or a company creates a problem for you to be discontent about that you didn't even know you needed to be discontent about. And um, for example, do you remember that soap brand Zest? It might still be around. I'm not sure. Um, But in the late 80s and 90s, they came up with a slogan, you're not fully clean unless you're zestfully clean. Everybody knows it because it worked. So basically, they were telling us, soap isn't good enough for you. You need zest. And it totally worked. And overnight, zest became like this bestseller simply because for us, soap isn't good enough, right? We need zest. That's how that works. But for believers, life should be different, right? We are new creations in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. But we're also in that mixed condition that we've talked about. We're able to not sin. We're able to please God. But there's a fight because of that residual sin. (coughs) And we're able to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. And contentment for a believer is humbly finding delight in God's wise plan and consistently delighting in it so that God will be glorified every single day. So, we are going to take a look at contentment. Before we start, we're going to take a look at Paul's life, because he's a great example of contentment. Um, 
We're going to turn to Philippians in a minute. But in Philippians 4, Paul tells us that he learned the secret of being content. So before we dive into Philippians, we want to make sure we really understand who Paul is, why he's able to make this statement, that he's learned the secret of being content. So turn to 2 Corinthians 11. This is where Paul is telling us his story. It's a little history of the life and hardships of Paul. 2 Corinthians 11. (coughs) We're going to start in verse 23. This is Paul talking. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beatings without number, in frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship in many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry, in cold and without enough clothing. That's a lot. Okay, And that's not even all of the suffering that Paul experienced, because we know that in the end he was executed by Nero, probably by beheading. So I would dare say that most, if not all of us, have not experienced the kind of suffering Paul has. And so if Paul is stepping up to teach us a life lesson on contentment, I think we'd better listen. So if he can be content with all that he experienced that we just read about, then he must have something to teach us. So now turn to Philippians 4. We're going to be moving around a lot in your Bibles today. So I hope your fingers are warmed up. Philippians 4, starting in verse 11. This is again Paul talking. And I'm actually going to start in verse 12. He says, (coughs) Not that I speak from want, for I learn to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul says that he learned to be content. This means he wasn't supernaturally spiritual. He wasn't bestowed with a great gift of contentment. It wasn't a part of his personality. He learned contentment over time and over practice. So in Paul learning to be content, this implies two things that are going to be really helpful for us to understand here. Number one, not every Christian has learned it. And number two, it is possible to learn. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Okay, but look, but how? Look at verse 13. We just read this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That verse is talking about contentment. It's not talking about making a winning touchdown or a three-pointer at the buzzer or running a six-minute mile, as it often gets used. It's talking about contentment. So we can learn to be content, like Paul, because of Christ. We are to be totally and completely reliant on God because we need him alone for this life. What we need... What we actually really need for life is Christ. Uh, Earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 21, 
for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in verse 23, he says, but I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. So he didn't need a comfortable house or nice clothes or helpful friends or a supportive family or an easy job or respect from people around him or to be thanked. What he needed was Christ. And C.S. Lewis says it this way. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. And so it's almost as if Paul and C.S. Lewis are saying the same thing here, that the world, everything in it, is nothing. It's worthless. So just stop for a second and think about the implications of living this way. If our relationship with Christ, our eternal security, our hope of heaven is all we need, how does that change fear or worry or anger or disappointment or relationships or our pride? The implications are very wide, but we're here to talk about contentment. So Number one on your outline. What is contentment? So in 1648, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Some of you may have read it. Um, And this is how he defines contentment. And I think this is written on your outline. Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So again, this book was written in 1648 and it is 2024. So let's break this definition down and see if we can understand it just a little bit better. So he says, sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. So frame of spirit is like mindset, heart condition. So sweet, let's think about what's sweet. Dessert is sweet. (laughs) Flowers are sweet. Children are sometimes sweet. Um, But things that are sweet are things that we want to be around. They're pleasing, right? And they're a a stark contrast to something that's sour or bitter. So think about a sour or a bitter person. They're not someone you really want to be around, right? Think about Naomi from the book of Ruth. Heather just talked about this a few weeks ago. After her husband and sons died, she changed her name to Mara, which translated, literally translated, means bitter. (laughs) She was not seeking contentment in her situation. She gave in to that root of bitterness. And a sour or a bitter person often has a pessimistic outlook on life, you know? They're anxious, they're negative, they're gloomy, they're kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) So... When the doctor comes back with a less than ideal test result, or you wake up in pain again, or you didn't sleep last night again, or the diagnosis is not what you were hoping for, how do you respond? What do you do? Here's what you do. You remind yourself of Psalm 42.5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him. So... The psalmist here is despairing. And so like the psalmist, you can remind yourself of who God is. You can counsel yourself with truth and then you can praise God. All right, let's talk about inward. So we did sweet and now we're on inward. (coughs) This is telling us that contentment is a heart issue, right? It's deep. We're not just pretending to be content. It's actually a part of who we are. And that's why it takes all of our lives to learn and perfect it. 
and contentment isn't tied to our circumstances. You've probably heard this quote from Elizabeth Elliot, but she said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. So contentment isn't just like a jacket that we put over our shoulders on a cold day. It's a mindset. It's a heart condition that is formed by slow, constant, faithful shepherding and practice. And we've talked a lot about heart shepherding this year, so this isn't new information for any of you. Um, We can shepherd our hearts because we're regenerated. We must shepherd our hearts because we're in that mixed condition. And remember our our wellspring verse, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. So this inward bit that he's talking about here is who you are inside. It's your heart. So we did sweet and inward. Let's talk about quiet. So this is an inner quietness. This is not just silence. Okay. This is the opposite of murmuring, the opposite of complaining. It's the opposite of being noisy and rebellious. It's not shaking your fist at God or voicing your displeasure to anyone who's willing to listen to you. But also quietness is not passivity. It's not complacency. It's not like, oh, you're sitting in traffic and you're stuck behind a slow moving tractor trailer and you're just like, oh, well, I guess I need to be content and just sit here turn your blinker on and go around, you know, don't stay there. But we are shown in the book of Psalms how to cry out to God. And we can do that. And we're given an example. So turn to Psalm 130. <coughs> um, a full study of the book of Psalms will really show us how to lament. It's, it's showing us we don't need to just put a piece of tape over our mouths. We can cry out to God. But when we do so, we need to remind ourselves of truth. This is how we show contentment quietly while crying out to God. And this is another element of heart shepherding. So Psalm 130. Out of the depths I called out to you, O Yahweh. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you should keep iniquities, O Yah, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I hope for Yahweh. My soul does hope. And for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, the watchman for the morning. O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And it is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the psalmist here is crying out to God in distress. But he doesn't allow himself to stay there. In his distress, he speaks truth for himself. He says, I hope for Yahweh. My soul waits for the Lord. With Yahweh, there is loving kindness and abundant redemption. This isn't the incessant complaining to your friends or on social media. This is crying out to God, the God who hears and the God who is faithful. So when your day didn't go as planned, you got a flat tire and the post office lost an important package and your Wi-Fi isn't working and the grocery store is out of asparagus again, don't know why that's happening. How do we respond? Do we whine on and on to our spouse about how terrible our day was? Or do we cry out to God? And do we remind ourselves our hope and our joy is found in the Lord, remind ourselves who God is, and then respond in love? All right. Sweet inward quiet. Now we're on to gracious. So to be gracious is to show kindness or favor or to be compassionate toward others. 
So just think about the grace that has been shown to you by our Lord and Savior. We have been shown much, much grace. So in turn, this graciousness that we are to show is to be a supernatural state of sovereign grace that is working in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this kind of grace is only possible for a genuine believer. Contentment for the believer is ongoing. It's a work of sanctification. And I like how Andrew Davis puts it in his book. It's called The Power of Christian Contentment. Highly recommend it. Christian contentment is a miracle of sovereign grace working together with a regenerate soul. God will get the glory and we will get the joy. So a joyful person is a gracious person. And still in Philippians 4.4, 4, um, <coughs> Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So what this doesn't say is rejoice when things are going your way or rejoice when you feel like it. This says rejoice always. So the implication here is there's going to be times when you don't feel like rejoicing. But rejoice in God anyway. So when you've worked all day to clean the house and make a nice dinner and those in your home never notice or never say thank you, can you be content and respond with graciousness? You can, and you should. All right, we're still talking about our definition of contentment, so we're going to read it again. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, remember, or mindset we talked about, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So before we get further, let's talk about what God's wise and fatherly disposal means. Disposal is not a word we use regularly in 2024 unless you're doing dishes, really. So, disposal. This is God's decisions about you. God's decisions about your life, your world, your future, your children, your health, your outward appearance, your electronics, (laughs) your relationships, your job, your spouse, and so on. It's God's choices and decisions about you. Turn to Psalm 139, verse 16. Psalm 139. We're going to read verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So, before we were born, God decided and planned who we would be, where we would live if and who we would marry, what trials would cross our paths, how good at sports we would be, how smart we would be. And this is called the doctrine of providence. Burroughs in his book refers to it as God's wise and fatherly disposal. And that makes it very precious to us because God's decisions are perfectly wise and God's wisdom is limitless. A few weeks ago when Scott was here, he talked about Isaiah 55, 9, which says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. God's wisdom is above us, and it is limitless. And Andrew Davis puts it this way, again, from the power of Christian contentment. Everything that God carefully measures out and allows to come into our lives must first pass through the wall of his protective love. And when he brings pain into our lives, it is only to heal us, which he means grow in sanctification, and make us more glorious in eternity. 
So the first time I read that quote was actually during those four weeks of vertigo. And I cannot explain what a bomb it was to my heart to know that this vertigo passed through the wall of God's protective love. And there is comfort to be found in the midst of a trial when we look to truth. And that's what we need to learn today. All right, let's look at freely submits to and delights in, another part of our definition. So what is the opposite of freely submitting to? Rebellion, right? And God has rescued our rebellious hearts. But, again, we know we're in that mixed condition. So remember that center panel on your blue chart. It's been a while since we've looked at it, but the residue of sin remains. We're fighting our sinful nature every day, but we can. We can fight sin, and we must fight sin, which means we can and we must fight for contentment. In Genesis 3, you don't need to turn there, but it tells us about how Satan tempted Eve to be discontent. God gave her every tree in the garden that she could eat from, except for one. Was she thankful for God's provision? We'll see. But then Satan comes along, and he plants a little seed of discontent in her heart. He tempted her to look at that one forbidden tree and realize, even though she had everything else, she still wasn't satisfied. And Eve, in that moment, didn't freely submit herself to and delight in God's wise and fatherly authority. She rebelled in her heart and then rebelled in her actions and then tempted her husband to rebel by being discontent with God's abundant provision. See the D2 that was happening there? (laughs) She had an effect on her home. Sometimes we might think we're being content in a situation, but we're like we're submitting to it, but it's like kind of reluctantly or begrudgingly, like we're kind of being forced into it. I've been there. But in Burroughs' definition, he moves beyond forcing ourselves to be content because he uses that word delights. So what do you delight in? What is delightful to you? For me, babies are delightful. Vacations are delightful. A really sweet morning with a friend over a cup of coffee is really delightful. It's something we find joy in, something that's pleasurable. Turn to Hebrews 12. I want us to get our eyes on this this morning. Hebrews 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Hebrews 12, 1. (coughs) Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So crucifixion is not delightful. Yet, Jesus Christ freely and willingly submitted himself to God's sovereign, loving plan and delighted or found joy in that obedience, even though it meant a slow and painful death. And that is the example we are to follow. Because in verse 2 it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Look at Jesus' example. He looked beyond temporary pain that he would endure because he delighted in God's glorious sovereign plan of salvation. I want that kind of contentment, that kind of contentment that we find in the example of Christ. 
So that brings us to number two. How do we get it? How do I get that kind of contentment? We just talked about it. Look to Jesus Christ. He is the best example of contentment. Delighting in God's good plan, despite the hardships. All right, turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. (coughs) Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was on the throne of glory, right? He was seated at the right hand of God. He was in heaven and he put all of that aside to become a baby born in extremely humble circumstances. He grew up with earthly flawed and sinful parents whom he submitted to. He was surrounded by sick, sinful, needy people. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by his own family. He was whipped. He was made fun of. He was humiliated. And he was crucified in the most shameful death manageable. And then while on the cross, perhaps this is the worst part of it all, we read in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from his father. And there's no better example to look to for what my contentment should look like. Jesus had a God-centered focus in his life. He was not seeking his own glory. He was seeking God's alone. In John 4:34, this is Jesus talking, and he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So, how do we learn from Jesus' example? We must become more and more God-centered. We must take our eyes off of our own glory, our own plans, our own agendas, our own desires, and focus on the plan, desire, and glory of the Father. And have you ever given thought to how much of your discontentment comes from your own selfishness? Are you the center of your universe? The Greener Grass Conspiracy, another book about contentment, written by Stephen Altrog, says, discontentment results from a big view of myself and a very little view of God. So how big do you see yourself? How important are you to you? And how important are your plans or your desires? Now, discontentment is the opposite of contentment. So if contentment is humbly finding delight in God's wise plan and constantly delighting in it so that God will be glorified every single day, then discontentment is pridefully thinking and acting like my plan is better than God's and grumbling and complaining when things don't go my way and seeking my desires and my glory above all else. So Isaiah 43, 7 says, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Everyone who is called by my name... And whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. So this verse is telling us that we were literally created. The purpose you're here is to bring glory to God. The reason you're breathing right now 
is so that you can display God's worth to the world and show how great God really is. So can you do that when you're feeling good and your bank account is in the black and you're around people you like? Sure. But can you bring the same glory to God when you've had a migraine for six days and one of your kids is crying and your husband is out of town for work and you're stressed about the mortgage payment? You sure can. Because God doesn't exist for us. We exist for God. God is the center of the universe, not the other way around. We must learn to be content in whatever situation God chooses to place us in. Now, when my kids were little, they used to say a lot of really funny things. And I used to write them down. They still say a lot of really funny things, but they'd be embarrassed if I wrote them down. So I'm not going to say which one, but one of my kids at around three years old, and you might be surprised which one, asked for something. I don't know if it was like a cookie or candy or something. I don't remember. I said no. And she immediately crossed her arms, dropped her chin, set her jaw. It was amazing at three years old. She stamped her foot, and she said in this really unhappy voice, well, now the party's over. (laughs) It was, trust me, it was really over at that point. But do we sometimes do that in our own hearts, you know, when we don't get what we want or what we think we deserve, even if it's a really good thing? We might be a little too old to stamp our feet and cross our arms. Um, But do our hearts rebel? Do we get angry? Do we respond by grumbling or demanding? (coughs) That's not following the example of Christ that we have just been talking about. As believing women who can and should counsel their hearts, in that moment, we need to stop, repent of those sinful ways of thinking, ask the Lord to help us be content, remind ourselves of the example of Christ, and then move on in contentment. Okay, but say we do that. And then like 10 minutes or less later, I respond with discontentment again because we all know that's going to happen. What do I do then? What do I do? I counsel my heart. I repent. I remind myself of the example of Christ. I I ask the Lord to help me. I remind myself of who I was created for. Wash, rinse, repeat. And repeat, and repeat, and repeat. But does that get just a little discouraging? Yes, it does, because living in this mixed condition is kind of discouraging. But we have hope. And this is what I want to encourage you with today, because I feel like this has kind of been a lot of information and kind of heavy. So here's where the encouragement starts. The hope is that we have all that we have in Christ. So we've talked about Christ's example of contentment in his life, Christ's example of contentment in his death. So let's talk about his resurrection. First Corinthians 15:55 says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. (coughs) But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection gives us full confidence that all of this dying to sin, living to Christ, shepherding our heart, counseling ourselves with the word of God, putting off sin, putting on the fruit of the spirit, the pain, the suffering, the sorrow, everything is not in vain. Verse 58 of the same passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We have hope of a glorious future with God, and that gives us immeasurable power for contentment in this life, because it gives us hope. 
All right, turn to Revelation 21. I know we're in Revelation on Sunday mornings. It might be a little while before we get to chapter 21. So we're going to go ahead and take a look at it today. (coughs) Revelation 21, we're going to start in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That is our hope, because that is our future promise to those who believe. Um, I'm going to read another section from Andrew Davis's book about the hope that we can have when facing discontentment in this life. So when we're facing adverse circumstances as Christians, we can drive away discontent by the truth of Christ's resurrection. We can say to the temptation, it is true that I am suffering and in great pain. It is true that my earthly condition is the worst I have ever experienced. But this one thing I know, here's where the encouragement comes. Christ is risen and he has therefore defeated death. And he did not defeat death for himself. He defeated it for me. Someday I will emerge from my tomb in a resurrection body that will shine like the sun in the kingdom of my father. So if you're interested in knowing what heaven will be like, the place where If you're a believer, you're going to spend forever. Read Revelation 21 and then the first five verses of Revelation 22. This whole section. This is your future. This is where you're going to spend eternity. We should know it. And as I'm sure we've all heard Smed say on more than one occasion, life is short, hell is real, and heaven is home. So know this home that God has waiting for you. And when you're faced with temptation to be discontent, remind yourself of your home. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse is a command. We're being told, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Have you ever planned like a big trip or a big event or something that you're really looking forward to? Part of the excitement at least for me, is the anticipation, right, of of what's coming. We are planning a summer road trip as a family. 17 states in 17 days. Pray for me now. Um, But I've talked to a lot of friends. I've Googled a ton of things. I made a spreadsheet. I love spreadsheets. I've downloaded apps, all sorts of things. Um, But this planning part is so fun because I'm looking forward to something really amazing coming. So, you know, today was a really long and hard day, but We're going on a road trip this summer, and it's something I'm looking forward to. And scripture is telling us to live in hope of what's to come. And that's why we have to know Revelation 21 and 22 really, really well, because we're going to spend forever there. So we can live in anticipation of that. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. This is a promise. God, who called you to himself, will bring you to eternal glory. That has immense implications on your sanctification process. That process of you putting aside discontentment and putting on thankfulness. Romans 8, 
Let's turn there. (coughs) Romans 8. Starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So this should be our dominating hope. This is what we are longing for, the redemption of our body without sin, without suffering, without sorrow. So, what does all this living in hope of heaven do for us here on earth? It changes how we live. Um, I listened to a sermon recently by John MacArthur on heaven, and this is something he said. Don't expect too much here. Find your joy in what is to come. Fix your hope on the revelation of Christ. Hope is nothing but faith extended into the future. I'm looking forward to that. So, can we honestly say, like Paul did in Philippians 1.23, which we read earlier, but I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Or, are you wishing not to go to heaven just yet? Are there some things that maybe have captivated you in such a way that heaven can wait Again, I'm going to quote John MacArthur from that same sermon on heaven. He says, To wish not to go to heaven is to overestimate the value of anything and everything on earth. To wish not to go to heaven is to make some kind of truce with your fallenness. To wish not to go to heaven is an expression of the fact that you're not quite prepared to exist only for the glory of God because you have a few things you'd like to do for yourself. To wish not to go to heaven is to be a little too comfortable with sin. To wish not to go to heaven is to be insensitive to the worthlessness of earth's vanities. So, set your affections on things above. Live in anticipation of everything that the Lord has promised. So, we talked about what contentment is, how to get it. Let's talk a few minutes really practically. Because... I know, I feel like this lesson hits pretty close to home. (laughs) And if you desire to be content and you don't know where to start, let's talk about a few things to help us practice contentment. So the first one is promises. And this is referring to God's promises. And first, we know we can't focus on God's promises if we're not in his word. So daily communion with God, meditating on his word, memorizing scripture, filling our minds with truth, And then I have a few specific passages listed there that might be helpful for you. I'm going to read them. Philippians 4.19. And my God will fulfill all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God promised that he would fulfill our needs. So remember back to, we talked about the doctrine of providence. 
delight in him fulfilling what he deems to be your true needs. And then Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things for our good. Migraines, singleness, infertility, loneliness, the very things that tempt us to be discontent are the very things that God is using for our good. And then Psalm 84, 11. For Yahweh God is a sun and a shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk blamelessly. So did you hear that? No good thing. God's not holding back from us. He's not a Scrooge, right? If it's good, God will give it. If it's not good, God's not going to give it to us. Thomas Watson also wrote a book on contentment. And he said, we fancy such a condition of life good for us. Whereas, if we were our own carvers, we should often cut the worst piece. So aren't we thankful that God is the master carver? All right, the next P in our practical section here is prayer. So do you find that your prayer life is full of requests for a new house or a boyfriend or a bigger paycheck or healing or rest? I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for those things. Matthew 6, 8 actually (coughs) tells us, That God knows what we need before we even ask him. So ask him. But I want to look at an example of what Paul prayed for. Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. Go ahead and turn there. I want to take a look at it together. All right. Starting in verse 18 of Ephesians 1. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, here we go, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength? So this is Paul's example of prayer. And let's look at what he's asking for. He's asking that the Ephesians would know the hope to which they've been called. So do we pray for that? He's asking that they would understand their riches in Christ. Do we pray for that? And that they would feel the greatness of God's power working in them. These are things that we should be praying for as well. We should pray that way for ourselves. And we should pray that way for others around us. And the next passage I have written there is Psalm 1914. I'll just read it for you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Make this your prayer, right? Ask the Lord to do a work of contentment in your heart so that what flows out of your heart, whether it words or deeds, is acceptable in God's sight. All right, the next P here in our practical section is people. Growing in contentment is greatly hindered when we are not in the body of Christ. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But 
Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We know that sin is deceitful. Our hearts do and will lie to us, telling us what we think we need to be happy. We can't trust them, right? We need the church body to help us, to speak truth to us, to confront us, to show us where we might be believing lies and being discontent. So do you find that you're in this fight alone, or do you maybe have two or three close friends that you can confide in that hold you accountable? I'm thankful for friends I have who are willing to call me out and point out where my thinking is sinful. So if you don't have that, open up to others. Invite people in. um, Invite them to speak into your life. So here we're going to take a little minute for a sidebar on complaining, because I feel like we can't talk about contentment without talking about complaining. So what is complaining? Here's the definition. You don't need to write it down. But here's the definition I'm going to read to you. Complaining is an idolatrous response when we don't have something we think we should. Notice, I didn't say complaining is what comes out of our mouths when we don't have what we think we should. Complaining can happen with our lips tightly sealed because it starts in our heart. Uh, The gospel makes it really clear that the only thing we actually deserve is hell. Uh, I remember Tom Eng said, said, anything better than that is a good day. And, And I agree. God created us. God owns us. Our lives are under his control. We've talked about this. So when we have demands or desires, it sounds like the spirals lesson, right? That are unmet and we grumble or we murmur or we complain. We shake our insignificant fists in God's face. We're actually telling him that he isn't good. Or that he isn't right. And the greener grass conspiracy says that complaining is telling a lie about God. So is the gospel not enough? Is salvation not enough? Is the good news of God's gift of eternal life not enough for me? What else do I need? So we can fight complaining by being thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This is really familiar. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Contentment and thankfulness go hand in hand. So look for things to be thankful for. Thank God for everything from the fresh food in your refrigerator to that flat tire you get on the freeway. All right, the next P is practically. This is our last P here. Practically. In um, The Power of Contentment by Andrew Davis. In the last chapter, he lists ways to fight for contentment over the long haul. Because we talked about it being being practice. Practice doesn't happen in a day, right? It's a long time. So I'm going to list these. Um, but take one or two and apply them to your life. Because I'm sure we all need to grow in our contentment today. The first one he suggests is study the heroes of church history. So you could read Hebrews 11. You could read the book of Acts. You could read biographies. There's lots of resources out there. The second one he recommends is study the persecuted church. There's a couple of websites, Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors. So it's opendoorsus.org is the website, or you can just look up Open Doors. Um, you can learn more about people, churches that are being persecuted today, and you can sign up for a prayer guide that they can send to you. The, the next thing he suggests is hold the ropes for missions. So you can sign up to receive our missionaries' newsletters, that iPad out there on the wall. You can sign up for their newsletters. You can pray for them. You can email them. You can support them financially. The next one he suggests is fast periodically from specific worldly pleasures. 
Now, this doesn't have to be food. I know when we say fasting, we often think food. But maybe it's fasting from social media or fasting from shopping or Netflix or whatever it might be for you. The next one he suggests is get involved with new ministries that will stretch you. If you would like to know about a new ministry to be involved in, you can stop by the info table. (laughs) There is a two-sided piece of paper that has all the ministries available at Grace Bible Church. I bet you there's one on there you might not know about. Um, The next one he says is seek avenues of service that are thankless. Um, I don't know how many of you know this, but every Sunday morning, there's a group of men who arrive pretty early and they pick up all the trash in the parking lot. And they use a leaf blower and they clean off the whole front of the church. Not very many people know that. Not very many people see them. And hardly anybody says thank you to them. There are lots of ways to serve that are thankless. The next one he suggests is visit the elderly, the sick, the dying, and comfort the bereaved. Again, there's another group that go on Sunday afternoons to an assisted living facility. They share the gospel. They pray. They spend time with the residents there. You can join them. Again, get that little sheet of paper from the info table and you'll find out who to contact. It's giving, giving of your time, giving of, of giving financially, giving sacrificially, giving to bless those around you. The next one he suggests is seek accountability. So ask your spouse, maybe, or a friend or your small group leader or your discussion group leader if they might see any regular patterns of discontent in your life and then ask them to pray for you ask them to hold you accountable. That means they're going to check in and ask. (laughs) The next one he says is study God's word, looking for passages on contentment, God's sovereignty, providence, and suffering. There's a lot of passages in your notes from today. That's why I listed all the scriptures. You can start there, but I'm telling you, it is not all of them. (laughs) There's a lot out there. You can study God's word looking for uh, passages on contentment. And the last one he suggests is read good books on contentment. And I, I like that he suggests this last, because this is good, but all those other things are really good as well. We should do those. So he says, read good books on contentment, God's sovereignty, providence, and suffering. And there are several listed there that I used to help prepare for this lesson today, but I know there's others as well. Um, but I would re- recommend any of those that are listed there for you to read. Let me close in a word of prayer, and then you guys can head to your discussion groups. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. and Thank you for your graciousness to us. Thank you for your your patience as we are in this process of sanctification, and we fall and we fail. And God, we need to repent And live in such a way that brings you glory. And I pray that you do that work in our hearts. That you keep our eyes focused on the hope that is to come. That we live with an eternal perspective. Knowing that this world is not our home. And our home is with you in heaven. And we will be there after a short while. And I pray that we use that short while in a way that makes much of who you are. Not much of who we are. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen.